For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we get into this week's show, I just wanted to give you a quick reminder about Spiked Supporters. Spiked Supporters is our way of giving back to those of you who support our work. Spiked has no paywall and no subscriptions. We rely on the generosity of listeners and readers like yourself to keep us going and growing. Sign up to become a Spike supporter today and you'll not only help Spike to reach more people with our pro-freedom, pro-democracy message, you'll also get some exciting perks in return, including discounts on events, discounts in our shop, and much more besides. To find out more about becoming a Spike supporter, just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. The more you have a preoccupation with identitarian concerns and hyper-racialism, the less you're talking about housing, the less you're talking about industry. You know, the, the consequences of dividing people, putting one group against another, preoccupation, a raise, constant raising the racial temperature over everything. is a total distraction. These are luxury opinions. You know, and the fact that so many very, very rich corporations and individuals have embraced this stuff should be a little indicator that you know it suits them you know it gets people off the subject of economic inequality Hello and welcome to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by William Clouston. William is the leader of the UK's Social Democratic Party. He first joined the SDP in 1982. He's been a district councillor and a parliamentary candidate for the party, and he currently sits on the Corbridge Parish Council in Northumberland. William has been leader of the SDP since 2018, and he was re-elected as leader in March 2020. So, William, I want to talk to you over the next hour about the realignment of British politics and the changing nature of the left and the changing nature of the right and where you fit into this new spectrum. But to get us onto that journey of discussion, I want to kick off by asking you if you could just give our listeners a kind of a potted history of the Social Democratic Party, where it comes from, what you think it represents, and what what its place is in contemporary politics. If you could just give us a brief outline of, of that history, and then we can kind of use that as a diving board to talk about those other issues. Great. Well, the SDP is a Labour offshoot, so it's a thing of the left. Um, and basically the, 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 the sort of three-line history is that the Gang of Four started it. They were a, um, very prominent Labour politicians, ex-Home Secretary and Foreign Secretary and Transport Secretary, four of them. Um, they left the Labour Party in 81, and they started it, and they, didn't, they needed to change the system. The, the idea was that we'd break the system. So mm. the, um, the sort of core thing with the SDP is to try and destroy the two-party system. And the subversive part 
of the SDP, which is very subversive, is the idea that you get rid of vested interest politics. So everyone knows that Labour is, you know, in the pocket of the unions and does the public sector's work. We've seen that in the pandemic, haven't we? And the Tories are in the in the pocket of big business and entrenched privilege. So the idea, the SDP's idea was that you can govern for everyone. Uh, and it's radical. It's quite subversive idea but the social market economy thing sort of was 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 what we promoted then and we still do it should be possible to govern for the whole country but basically it's it's economics is is off the left and i think over the last sort of 40 years since we started there's been a drift towards a reaction against liberal overreach i think so where we are i mean the way i'd sort of describe it is the party was knocked to the grassroots after Owen left in 1990. And, you know, we live to fight another day and we're fighting another day. And there is a there is room for us. Um, I think probably about half the public broadly agree with our approach, which is left-wing economics and the fairly traditional attitude towards sort of family, community, nation, the things that we do together. And one of the big questions I have for you is, is how we shatter the two-party system, because I completely agree with you that that really needs shattering. So I want to come back to that in a moment. But just to carry on from with this issue of of the SDP and where it fits in, so I want to ask you about the realignments that are taking place in British politics, which seem to me to be quite um, drastic and interesting and exciting and unpredictable as well. So on the one hand, we have a Conservative Party that is very different to the Conservative Party I remember when I was growing up, when I was a child under the in the Thatcher years, and the Conservative Party was considered to be very free marketeer, very, very neoliberal, didn't particularly care about working class communities. That was the distinct impression we had of the Thatcher government. Now you have a Conservative Party that is interested in big spending, which is always trying to appeal to the red wall parts of the country where it got many of its votes in 2019, which says F big business, not not wanting to use rude words on the podcast. Um, and then on the other side, you have a Labour Party, which is in thrall in many ways, or, or at least it was in thrall to the neoliberal European Union, which buys into uh, the politics of wokeness, the politics of identity, which seem to grate very explicitly against the politics of class and particularly what working class communities are interested in. So there's been this huge kind of earthquake, it seems, in British politics, where the right is no longer like it once was, and the left is no longer like it once was either. Is that how you see it too, or, or, or do you have a different understanding of what's taken place over the past 20 or 30 years? I think it's happened more recently than that, in a sense. I think the difference between Blair and Cameron Osborne was negligible, uh, literally mm-hmm. nothing. Um, so I think largely the changes that we're seeing now, uh, the Tory party is being sort of dragged, kicking, streaming into it. Let's deal with the Tories first. So I think they, I think there is a basic tension. They've got, they've, you know, it's a pragmatic organization. It's, its main aim is to be in power. And you've got a situation where the, the Labour Party has literally turned its back and, uh, you know, demonized its core patriotic working class vote. It despises these people, as, as Paul Embrick rightly says. And it has no right to those votes. And people took a little bit of time, but they got onto it and they gave Labour the flick. So Labour's lost that, and that's a rotation. It's not a, a swing. It's very important to, to grasp that. We're, cu- mm. we're accustomed to think about politics in terms of swings, but that's a cultural rotation. 
similar to the say the you know the Democrats using the Southern states in the sixties. You're not going to get those back uh, almost under any circumstances. I think they've lost them. I think the the public. I I stood in Leeds in the 2019 election. And the contempt which the ordinary members of the public had in South Leeds on council estates for Labour was astonishing. I mean, you wouldn't mm-hmm. believe it. Uh, all the students who are, you know, campaigning for Labour didn't want to come anywhere near those estates. And so they're really a toast, literally toast. They've done it. And also, Brendan, when you do, when you treat people like that, it's people feel it in the heart. Yeah. So it's not a, it's not a thing. It's not a pragmatic thing. Oh, well, you know, I might vote Labour because they'll do this for me. No, it's 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 a brutal thing. So they're 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 finished in those communities. The late, the Tory Party has sort of inherited a lot of seats in the in the Red Wall without really being on top of them politically, apart from Brexit. So they were on top of them on Brexit, but economically they they've had a they've they've got a a fair way to go. And there's a tension, a huge tension in the Tory Party now uh, between some Red Wall wall uh new tory mps which are pretty much like us brendan i mean they're pretty so mm. you know simon clark and mp for mansfield and so on ben bradley they're pretty much like us but you've still got the knights of the shires you've still got the econ liberals in the tory party and, and they i would describe them as the the slow learners because we've tried that and what's happened over the last sort of 30 40 years is we've had open markets and we've deindustrialized. We've gutted our industrial capacity. I mean, manufacturing is down at 9% now. And you saw this in the pandemic when the government was sort of scrabbling around for supplies. Slightly pathetic. So we tried that. Uh, China's won the day, actually, on that. And the whole of the West is suffering. You only have to look at Philly and Pittsburgh and Cleveland, Ohio, Youngstown in the States to see this. So uh, the econ liberals are sort of having a sort of moment of saying, oh, oh Lord, what's happening? And, and that model shattered. And just from a sheer practical geopolitical point of view, that model is gone. You can't run your system with open uh, markets trading, you know, with uh, industrial supplies made by slavery. Uh, it's not on. Uh, it's not on, you know, ecologically, it's not on morally, and but economically it's not on because basically you just destroy yourself. So I think it's very interesting if you listen to people like John Redwood and you listen to people like David Davis they're quite thoughtful and I think the penny's dropping that the the model is 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 gone uh, so you've got to a sensible government now would fairly quickly look at uh, reshoring reindustrialization and you'd look at some trade friction which is very interesting because remember in the debate about brexit there was a sort of public discourse about trade deals that was about you know sort of fairly superficial level they had the debate and if you didn't have a trade deal you couldn't trade well what never occurred to a lot of the commentators were was that you actually want a little bit more trade friction i wouldn't have a trade deal with the united states we have a trade surplus with the united states now if you had a trade deal with them your financial services would go you wouldn't have much farming left and uh, it's just not in your interest to so yeah i mean they i think it's taking time i don't know brendan how long it will take for the econ liberals and the tory party to to make the the turn, but the model's been tried. It's, it's gutted our industry. It's wrecked society in the north and the Midlands, and uh, it's gone. So I, I think the north. I think some of the northern Red Wall Tory MPs get it, but I, you know, someone like Liz Trust, who, who's a sort of walking trade deficit, doesn't get it. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's take the parties, the two parties, I should say, the the two parties whose 
domination of British politics we want to dislodge. Uh, let's take them one at a time. So firstly, uh, the Tory party, uh, you've been talking about there, and I think that's a very good description of where the Conservatives are at. And I think one mistake that some people make, and I sometimes fall into this trap myself, is to think, well, the Labour Party is very, very divided, and we can come on to that in a moment. It's obviously very divided between uh, Corbynistas and the right wing of the Labour Party. And of course, it's working class voters who have revolted and left it and so on. So we see the Labour Party as very uh, broken apart and divided and confused. And then we see, we I think some people have a tendency to view the Conservative Party as being very different to that and being in power, in control, uh, having a clear sense of itself. But But that's obviously not true. And I think underneath the fact that this is a, a government that had a very large mandate in the 2019 general election. It is a very divided party. There are uh, the neoliberal forces. There are the new Red Wall MPs, as you describe, who have a clearer understanding, I think, of what working class communities want. There's the kind of middling ground, which could include Boris Johnson, who don't really know which way to swing and might swing rather opportunistically from one day to the next, from supporting the business side to supporting the red wall side. So uh, if we look at all those kind of tensions and confusions within the actual governing party, one question I wanted to ask you is, how successfully could the Conservative Party ever represent working class communities. Because there are now some conservatives who will openly say, we are the party of the working class. A larger number of working class people vote for us rather than voting for Labour. So that's where we're at. Is it possible that the Tories can ever represent the working classes? Or is that just a non-starter from the very beginning? I, I think I, what I would concede is that obviously the, I think 50, 57, nearly 60% of the Labour Party membership is, is graduates and the, mm. the, the level is lower for the Tories. And I think now, obviously, yeah, Matt Goodwin, I think it was equal in 2017, but now 2019, partly because of Brexit, the, the Tories got convened more working class votes. But that doesn't, I mean, I wouldn't trust the Tory party. I had four years mm. in the Tory party, you know, social, active social democrat in the, in the eighties. And a friend got me involved, and it's just a, it's just a sort of pragmatic, almost value-free zone. Really, it's a, it's an odd, it's an odd fish, you know. I mean, point that Peter Hitchens always says about you know conservatives. I mean, you know, the, the Conservative Party he describes as the principal obstacle to conservatism, and he's right. Um, so I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I doubt it, Brendan. I really, I, I just mm. don't think it has it in it to defend the interests of, of the working class. And there's been no hint of it anyway over the. I mean, you, you know, if you look at the post-war period, for from a for a period in the fifties, you know, when Millen, when they were, when you had the, you know, you had the solidarity from the Second World War, and the the program that Attlee started, you know, with house building the health service, and Millen went along with that, but then it was broken pretty quickly. So I, I, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, I think let's go back to the point that you're always going to have these incoherent large entities in these massive parties. Because we, we can't vote honestly. I mean, you can't yeah. vote honestly. You've got, and don't say that we don't have coalitions. We, you know, I mean, the, the Tory party is a coalition and the Labour yeah. party is a coalition. And, you know, so people always say, well, if you have voting reform, you, you know, you have coalitions. We've got now just depends whether you vote for them honestly prior to the election or, or you, or you, you know, you do your coalition first and then the, go to the government. You don't know what you're voting for. So I don't know. I mean, I, it literally is all over the place. And my, my basic problem with both parties in the last sort of 20, 30 years is that they've been both 
completely enthralled to liberalism, economic liberalism and, and social liberalism, and there's not been very much between them. I mean, a key point, an absolutely killer point that uh, Peter Shaw always used to make about the, the Labour Party in relation to its fondness with the European Union is that the European Union is structured to make social democracy, the sort of social democracy I want, uh, it's structured to make that impossible. I mean, if I wanted to keep a steel plant open, we're in the EU, can do it. So my sort of type of economic program requires that a nation state is active and is capable. You know, the, and for years the Labour Party were backing the EU, and and they, uh, as Shaw said, you know, they 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 were they were backing an entity in the EU that would prevent them from implementing the Keynesianism that they profess to want. So the whole thing was shot. I mean, the, as I say, the Labour Party is shot full of you know, woke graduates who are just, just liberals of various kinds. They're so far away from, um, you know, the, I mean, I think we're more economically left-wing than them, which isn't very yeah. difficult. So on the Labour Party then, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about Labour. I spend my, my, much of my life in a state of complete bewilderment as to what has become of the Labour Party. And you touched on this earlier, the the fact that it's not simply that Labour no longer understands working class communities, but it is now actively hostile to them. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. you can see this. I mean, you mentioned the estates in Leeds where the young, woke, middle-class Labour canvassers didn't dare to tread. And I've heard very similar stories about parts of London too. You know, they will go to somewhere like Bermondsey, for example. They'll go to the hyper-trendy places that have been super gentrified, but they won't go anywhere near the estates in Bermondsey where the English flag flies from every window and where people have uh, uh, rather different views to your average Corbynista. And there is this extreme hostility as, as captured in words like gammon. You know, I find gammon such an obnoxious term yeah. to me. It essentially means pig, you know, yeah. pig meat. Yeah. They refer to significant sections of the, of our society as, as pig meat essentially because they hold certain views or they're seen as being uh, insufficiently politically correct. Just give us a, your view of how this shift came about. Now it's my personal view that Labour was never the best friend of the working class and always had, there were always problems with how the Labour Party interacted with working class communities. But there has, even from, even from my perspective, there has been a palpable deterioration in how Labour views working class communities. And it is now pretty hostile to them and, and cont contemptuous towards them. Give us your view about how you think that came about and how bad you think that relationship has now got. Well, it's, it's finished. The relationship, um, it's gone and it won't come back. How did it come about? I think it probably came about due to the sort of intellectual journey, the sort of Rawlsian rights-based approach uh, intellectually. I think a lot of people just thought everything was about rights, uh, my rights, individual rights, and uh, that's been prioritised, I think, in their thinking. Uh, but they've just f forgot about us. They've forgot about solidarity. And they so they... If everything's about rights, they're slightly scared of solidarity. They're Brendan as well. Mm -hmm. They don't like. I mean, what they, they some of them are not very bright. I think, you know, <laughs> in a practical <laughs> sense, you know, they just don't get the thing again. The things they profess to want, like the National Health Service or convening national, national solidarity to do something like build houses. You know, housing's the biggest macroeconomic failure. The Labour Party did nothing about it. They weren't interested. They didn't build any council houses. Funnily enough, the council that I chair is just building four now. We, we, you can do it if you want to do it, but they never wanted to do it. 
so you know they, they've got themselves into a real pickle uh, they're just liberals of various kinds they they've forgotten that if you don't have any solidarity you don't end up with sharing anything you know if you don't sharing if you can't share things you, there's no health service there's a national health service and it, you know again if you prioritize internationalism open borders me 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 all the time you just lose any grasp any connection with with the fact that it, we're in it together you know and we we and working class communities understand this because they depend on it you, you yeah. you're in it together you need solidarity and even a basic thing if you speak to i you know leads i was up against um the son of a labor grandee that i rather respect tony ben but i i fought uh i fought mm-hmm. hillary hillary ben in the election and i we, we had a hustings at the university and those university students just didn't know what I was on about when I was talking about the nation state. They just, they were so hostile to the idea of the nation state, uh, which they just, I mean, they, they you know, make it virtually equivalent to racism to, to want yeah. to prioritize a fellow citizen. So they, yeah, I, I can't see any way that they can come back from it. Uh, but funnily enough, there is a, a little ray of optimism in all of this, which I, I like to talk about, which is that a lot of people say what we're doing is, you know, is, it hasn't got much chance and so on. I think it's a totally rational reaction to looking at something you're not very happy with and trying to change it. I think that's what we should do. And I think our future as a party depends on PR. And I think, I think PR will come and I, I'll, I'll explain why. I think the electoral dynamics are such the Labour Party having lost Scotland and the Red Wall can't win a general election. You know, the first past the post system survives because both parties benefit. If you get a situation, Brendan, where one of them doesn't suddenly doesn't benefit, they it's it's over. The the sort of stitch up the is is over. There's no point in them doing it. And you see this in a lot of Labour members, and you see a very unreported thing at the Labour Party conference, you know, a month and a half ago was that eighty percent of constituency Labour parties uh, voted for PR. Mm-hmm. And the union block vote stopped it. I think PR is going to happen. I think the Labour Party is stupid enough to lose maybe one, maybe two elections more. But you can't have a situation where you have a one-party state. I think it will give. So I think there's a sort of glint of light there. And I just all, all I want is for the British people to be able to vote honestly. It strikes me that the case for proportional representation is so obvious. I'm I'm surprised we have to continue making it. I mean, there are so many good examples of of ridiculous things that have happened in British politics that would not have happened in the same way if we'd had proportional representation. I mean, if you think about the 2015 general election where UKIP, whatever we may think of UKIP, I'm sure we have our various disagreements with it, Mm. uh, it it wins 12.5% of the vote and gets one seat in Parliament, one seat out of 650. And that's it's just such an an obvious wrong in political life. And I think there are one of the issues I think with the the, the two party system is as you say Labour and the Tories are essentially coalitions but there's a large element of dishonesty in it. So instead of honestly saying well we are blue labor over here and we are corbynista labor over here and we are going to be our own parties and we're going to actually battle against each other for people's votes or the Tory party also drifting off into its various different wings as well. They're held together as these dishonest coalitions almost, which benefit from the fact that they know that come election day, it will be one of those two parties that gets past the post and and gets power. So uh, what do you think, just sticking on, on this particular topic of electoral reform for a moment, what do you think is 
there's the obvious barrier that the two traditional parties benefit from this system and therefore are reluctant to have serious reform. But do you think there is a, a public resistance or, or, or perhaps a public misunderstanding of how destructive the, the, the two-party system is? What do you think it will take to break that barrier and have that, ideally, a referendum on changing this? I think the barrier will be broken by the fact that the system, as I said before, people aren't paying attention to it, but the it is a it is a stitch-up and it only works if both big parties benefit. The, the, the moment one party can't form a government and winner-take-all, they may as well do it. I mean, you know, Labour MPs are now saying, well, you know, if we had, you know, 60% mm. of people didn't vote Tory, you know, we could co- cozy up to the SNP and the Greens and the Liberal Democrats have some ghastly uh, <laughs> rainbow alliance. You know, uh, they're, they're, they're obviously thinking that way and they, they will think that way. And as I say, it's it's I think it's probably just an electoral fluke, uh, the dynamics of, of, of Scotland going to the SNP. Again, I can't see Labour getting those seats back. They might chip away a little bit, but they're not going to take them. The Tories have as good a chance of getting some of those seats as the Labour Party. And uh, so, you know, it just it's 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 out of the game. Uh, Labour is not in the first past the post game anymore. People don't haven't woken up to it. It's fine. I mean, you know, they'll wake up to it eventually. I mean, you know, they'll they'll lose another couple of elections, and then, as I say, you'll have it. I, I, you know, if we don't, if you have some sort of ghastly rainbow coalition, uh, you better hope the SDP's in there. You know, by that stage, because <laughs> it'll be a pretty dreadful environment if we're not. So yeah, there's so many arguments for you know fair voting. The one you made just there, you know, the the actual base fairness of it is that I, I first encountered that in the first election I worked on in '83. We you know the SDP Liberal Alliance got twenty twenty five and a half percent of the vote. Labour Party got we got twenty three seats. That the Labour Party got one and a half percent more than us, and they got two hundred and ten seats. It was ludicrous. Wow. I remember as a kid, you know, as a West Country Liberal MP called DC Penhaligon, David Penhaligon, who sadly died uh, uh, shortly afterwards. But he he said, you know, described it in a sort of Cornish accent as a, a gross perversion of justice. And he was right. He was right. I mean, no one could say it was fair. But I would say it just doesn't do what uh, an election should do. Seats, it should broadly match votes. And you saw this in the, in the Brexit uh, situation. You know, there wasn't you know, how many parties in Parliament, Brendan, supported what was the mainstream majority view? The mainstream majority view. And if it hadn't been so much, you know, um, coercion, the mainstream majority view would have been a lot bigger. But, you know, 52% of people voted for Brexit. The DUP, that was it. That was mm. the only party <laughs> in Parliament that, that supported the... Ma- and that was because these elites basically... You know the, the the gatekeepers of the selection system have got these professionalised MPs that went to the same universities, think the same things, and they're just liberals everywhere. And I just think, and I said, I mean, I it wouldn't be exactly like our party. We're pretty socially conservative, but you know there are there are social conservatives, Brendan, and they've got no one to vote for. Yeah. You know. So what do you do? I I mean, it, I'm I'm I really think it will change for this reason. So we'll we'll wait and see. Let's stick with the issue of electoral reform before I've got some questions I want to ask you about Brexit and wokeness and other issues of our time. But on the, on the issue of electoral reform, there's another problem, of course, in, in my view anyway, which is the House of Lords. So, and, and you talk there about the, uh, the obvious unfairness where people can vote in large numbers for a party and it's not reflected in the House of Commons. Mm. Um, in terms of seats. But then you also have a problem where if you look at 
for example, the um, the public's collapse of democratic faith in the in the Liberal Democrats, who have lost numerous seats in in the House of Commons, lost numerous votes, and yet they are still there in the House of Lords. I don't know how many peers they have now, 1995 or whatever it is, and they will be there until they die, mm. influencing lawmaking, amending laws, and having this impact. And and that's a good example of the broader problem with the House of Lords, which it is, it's this immovable object that you and I and everyone else in this country has no democratic authority over whatsoever. So isn't that akin to the Brexit issue, which I want to ask you further about soon, but it's akin to the Brexit issue in the sense that if we are serious about clearing away all the crap, I guess, that's standing in the way of people having a genuine sense of control over their lives and their community and their nation, the House of Lords has got to go, right? Yeah, no, it's a no-brainer. It's, it's, it's an outrage that it's still there. It was an absurdity 120 years ago, but it's still <laughs> an absurdity. And it's, it is ridiculous. It's just literal inertia. I, wouldn't, I don't deny that in a sense of, as a sort of you know, revising chamber, it has some quite intelligent people in there and it does that job, but that's not, I mean, you know, you can't accept the principle. I mean, apart from anything else, the hereditary principle is ludicrous. The, you know, the the bishop's ludicrous and the, the cronyism is the worst. I mean, you know, you give 3 million quid to the Tory party, you, you you know, become a a life peer, you can uh, affect legislation. It's an outrage. Um, We are, you know, fairly culturally traditional as a party, as most British people are. We support the monarchy as a sort of, because it adds to the gaiety of the nation. I think that's fine. But you can't support the House of Lords. You just you just can't. And um, our proposal is to to try and finish the unfinished business of, of, of England being hmm. sort of country that's dangling there, uh, left dangling with the devolution settlement in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, and uh, our view is you can't have an English parliament and two chambers. You know, if you sort of have an English parliament, I, my preference would be an English parliament with a parliament in York. You have to be unicameral uh, for the UK parliament. And you can be. I mean, there, there are unicameral states. You have to have a different system for revising and challenging legislation, scrutinizing it. But that's committee system. You can have an enhanced committee system to do that. Uh, so yeah, you've got to get rid of the House of Lords. It is an absurdity. It really isn't. It just is sheer. It's sheer inertia and rot. It sh- you know, eventually, I I think the whole lot's going to go quite. The first past the post system and the House of Lords by the mid twenty thirties is going to go. You'll get another revolution. Yes, the 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 issue of a, a revising chamber or an advising chamber. It's a very interesting one, and I, I remember Matt Ridley when he was on this podcast, made, and he's obviously a peer. He made a very interesting suggestion, which is that instead of having hereditary peers or, or the great and the good being selected by the government, how about we just open a phone book and stab a pen in it and pick the first hundred names that come up? And to many, to many people, that would sound shocking, but actually, to me, it sounds like a far more reasonable marshalling of the expertise of ordinary people to the end of, of going over these things. And I remember during the Brexit debate, there were so many discussions, there were so many newspaper headlines about the country's 100 top lawyers say that Brexit won't work, or the country's 100 top human rights activists say Brexit has... And I always thought to myself, what about the country's 100 top 
plumbers or 100 top bus drivers? Why do we not hear from them? Why are they not having this a similar impact in political life? So there's also a problem within all of this stuff we're talking about in terms of reform. There is a genuine problem in terms of this over-reliance on what is seen as expertise, which tends mm. to come from a fairly narrow section of society, and this downplaying of the wisdom of the kind of people you will have encountered when you were canvassing in Leeds, the kind of people we meet every day. So there's also that question, isn't there, about how we utilise the wisdom of, of ordinary people? Well, expertise is, Frank Ferreira gave a great speech at the STB conference, uh, he touched on this, expertise is being used uh, as, a, as a means of giving power to technocrats and taking things off the table. It's Tina again. It's, it's, there is no alternative. That's what they're using it for. They they try and take things, key issues off the table and try and sort of determine them pre, almost pre-politically. You know, so you, your ordinary person gets their purchase on them, can't, can't actually get near these issues because you leave it to experts. Uh, and there's a very important distinction we should make, Brendan, between expertise here. And a lot of people don't think enough about this, which is that, I mean, there is expertise. You get told off if you <laughs> say that you don't believe in yeah. expertise, but it's, it's micro expertise. I mean, macro expertise, it's a very, it's a very important distinction to get. Open systems, you know, economics, economic predictions or in, during the pandemic, making predictions about viral curves. This is not expertise in the same sense. You can't make predictions in open systems. It's a, it's a technical issue. You can't even judge the difference between magnitudes of co-cause co and cause. So it's very difficult. That's not gen You might be a very intelligent person. You might be very clever, but you can't make predictions. I'll tell you who can make predictions. Bakers, uh, engineers, mm -hmm. people that repair things. That's micro-expertise, and that's genuine expertise. And I, you've got to concede to that, because they can say, well, I fix that, that'll happen. And 99% and of the time, that's true. But I'm, I'm sad to say, you know, a lot of the people that we're encouraged to look up to as experts, they might be quite clever, but they're not very wise quite often. And they certainly yeah. can't predict things. It always reminds me of one of the points that the Chartists made. The, the Chartists, obviously, heroes of ours, mine and yours, no doubt, who, who fought for the right of working class men to vote in the 1800s. And one of the points they always made was, look, we're not saying that the ordinary working man is just as good as the Lord to, in terms of working out what's best for society. We're saying that he's better and he's better at working these things out precisely because he lives in society in a way that lords often don't and in, in a way that technocrats these days often don't. He understands how society works. He understands where it's going wrong. He has direct experiences of these problems. And that was seen as the kind of the, the democratic cry of the time. And so that, that makes me want to ask you to, to come back to the issue of Brexit and what you think Brexit represented, because... As you and I will know, it's Brexit. The vote for Brexit has been demonized a lot. We're told that it is the vote of xenophobes and gammon and people who are nostalgic for empire, even though we're voting to leave a neo empire. So that doesn't quite make sense. Um, so it's been demonized in all these different ways. But you told, you talked earlier about the importance of solidarity and the misunderstanding of solidarity among sections of the labor left and, and the elites more broadly. Mm. Brexit fundamentally was an attempt to restore a culture of solidarity, the politics of solidarity, do you think? Yeah, no, totally. That's what it was. I mean, it was a cry to to say enough. 
to cosmopolitanism, uh, indifference about what is made where and by whom, indifference uh, about where anyone goes, uh, and in, literally an indifference to the place you live. That's what it was a, a revolution against. It was a proper revolution. People had had enough about that. And I agree, it was a, it was a, a cry for solidarity and sharing. And when uh, people mock people in Sunderland for being thick and voting for Brexit and oh, the Nissan factory is going to close and all this sort of thing, well, even, I mean, that didn't happen. I mean, that was just yet, yet another one of those Project Fear things. But even if people in Sunderland did vote, knowing that there would be a consequence in the short term, that was in the bargain. That mm. was worth doing to get something back, to reassert a sense that we can decide ourselves. But it was so there's many things to Brexit. But yeah, I totally agree. Solidarity, uh, calling time on liberal overreach, and just just wanting to to reestablish some basics in in national self governance and things like that, which which had just been taken off the table, and um, and people knew that they couldn't affect you know a lot of as I said as John Gray says a lot you know a lot of stuff had been decided to be taken off the table pre politically, and people knew that they, they sort of felt the sense of powerlessness. Uh, you can't, there's no, you know, you can vote for any government, but they, you know, it's all wrapped up in the treaties and so on. People had enough of that. And, um, so, I, you know, I, I, I think it was a very, very pa powerful thing. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, I think a lot of, I mean, actually the SDP has quite a lot of senior people who were, uh, voted remain and then joined our party afterwards, a reaction against the reaction to the vote. So, you mm. know, sort of democratic remainers, are an un, unsung group, I think. Mm. We wouldn't have had 2019. In fact, we wouldn't have got it over the line without them. But I see no sign that the sort of core 5%, 10% of, you know, of, of rabid sort of <laughs> EU files, they still don't get it. And Brendan, they will never get it. No, uh, absolutely not. It brings to mind uh, at the countdown to Brexit in, in Westminster Square, I remember there was a woman there with a banner that said, um, this stupid northerner knew what she was voting for. And I yes. thought that was such a, yes. a perfect rebuke to all the Westminster lobbies who were yeah. looking with utter disdain uh, upon this gathering. Um, but you, you mentioned Peter Shaw earlier on. And alongside Peter Shaw, there was also uh, Barbara Castle. And uh, when you talked about speaking at a university and students not understanding where you were, lefty students not understanding where you were coming from, it reminds me of a speech that Barbara Castle gave at the Oxford Union, I think, um, during the first referendum on joining the EEC. And she was making a very clear case against what she referred to as Euro jingoism yeah. and the creation of this new monolith in Europe. And the students there had no idea where she was coming from. And no doubt they were all privately educated, had all the correct views, and they were kind of essentially laughing at her. So there was Peter Shaw, there was Barbara Castle, there was Tony Benn. Euroscepticism used to be a pretty left-wing phenomenon. And um, when I think of interesting Eurosceptics today, I, I think of people like you, I think of others around the SDP, I don't tend to think of the Singapore on the Thames brigade in the right because I think they misunderstand Brexit and oh, they totally if they do. and if they think it's going to unleash a new free market uh, zeal in the UK they're sorely mistaken. So there has been this great tradition of left-leaning euroscepticism or or working class euroscepticism. Mm. Why do you think the Labour Party in particular became so estranged from that tradition to such an extent that 
if you say this to a young Labour activist in particular, they simply will not know what you're talking about. I mean, you're quite right, okay, and it goes back earlier, much earlier than uh, just, you know, the, the 70s. I mean, and by the way, that the second part of that Oxford Union speech in 75 was Peter Shaw, which is the best mm. speech, political mm. speech, in my opinion, ever. Phenomenal speech, 21 minutes, absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. But it goes back earlier than that. Clement Attlee was a Eurosceptic. Hugh Gateskill was a Eurosceptic. The famous 61 speech, the Labour Party Conference, was written by Shaw, you know, th- ending a thousand years of history. That, that It's basics. This is basics. I mean, you can't have national self-government unless you have a nation. You know, it's, it's just basic. So I think what happened, you know, to cut a long story short, was I think during Thatcherism, I think that the famous Delors speech to the Labour Party conference sort of bought them off with progress. They thought, well, we can't, we can't achieve an electoral success with, against Thatcher, so we'll sort of we'll, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll ask other people to do our job for us. Terrible way of doing politics. We're going to ask the EU to vouchsafe our own workers' rights and all this sort of So they sort of bought the idea that, le- that the, the EU would sort of look after them, as, you know, be under the cloak. Instead of mastering their own destiny, they, they'd uh, subcontract the job of, of having sort of workers' rights to the EU. And it was a con because the, cause the EU is just a cartel. It's just a <laughs> neoliberal cartel. And it has a dreadful record. I mean, you, you know, speak to any, speak to someone like Thomas Fazzi, you know, the Italian Eurosceptic uh, of the left. You speak to anyone in, in Greece or Italy or Spain or Portugal on the fringe, and they'll talk about the EU, what, they, what the EU's done to them is deindustrialize them with 40% youth unemployment. Dreadful. And so, I mean, I, one of the reasons I got back into politics, you know, five or six years ago was I was walking on the beach in Portugal, and I'm a keen i speak portuguese and i love portugal and, and and they had lots of these little you know block on blocker scared you know the left block uh, uh, you know the big one the communist party which i don't subscribe to but they had a lot of other ones that were just the sort of party i wish we had you know strongly social solidarity you know left econ and you're a skeptic uh, and they get it so they yeah i mean i think but to, in a nut you know to summarize brenda i think they were just taken in by just an idea of progress somehow and 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 they just forgot and somehow the connections were lost. Spiked is producing more brilliant content than ever. The best way to keep up with everything we do is by signing up for our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all Spike's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spike team. So to never miss a thing, go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. It always brings to mind Tony Benn's rebuke to to left wing supporters of the EU, where he would say, it, "You know, it's better to have a, a bad parliament than a good king." But of course, the problem is the EU wasn't even a good king, as you've outlined. It was no. it was a complete con. The idea that you could realise social democracy through the distant committees of the European Union because the ordinary voters of Britain were such a disappointment to you was always a a, a fantastical con because the European Union, as you describe, is a neoliberal cartel and and not the the midwife of anything that you and I would recognise as social democracy. But on that point um, that you talked about, which I think is incredibly important, the the issue of solidarity and... um, 
just how important that is, how important it is in people's everyday lives. You know, as you said earlier, that working class communities know very well that you cannot get by without solidarity, without the assistance of your neighbors, of your friends, of your family. You know, these networks are incredibly important, which is why I think anything that's threatened those threatens those networks, whether it's big business that flies in for a couple of years and then abandons people afterwards, or the politics of wokeness, which says you've got white privilege, you're all gammon and you need to realize how racist you are, which kind of tends to tear communities apart as well. All of those things I think are incredibly dangerous for communities that rely on solidarity effectively for their survival. Hmm. But I want to ask you what you think are the main challenges to the culture of solidarity that we need. And, and firstly on the politics of identity, I want to ask you how, what role do you think the politics of identity plays and the whole notion of white privilege and these other ideas in terms of chipping away at how people conceive of themselves as a community? Oh, they're, they're utterly disastrous. The sad thing is that all these, you know, CRT narratives that they put push in, in cultural discourse and in schools and universities, you know, they are, they are really luxury opinions, Brendan, because the people that promote them are not feeling the effects. Uh, I, you know, I mean, we may have different views on, on drugs, uh, you know, but the, the, it's like that, you know, you, you, you have a liberal view, you push it, your community doesn't really pay the price for it. And that's, that's it. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the virtue signaling and all the sort of woke politics that we have to deal with are, uh, you know, uh, pumped by, but it's, it's like a sort of, it's like a sort of, it's like a sort of status appropriation game amongst very elite people. You know, you're just seeing how virtuous you can be, but you know the the consequences of dividing people, putting one group against another, preoccupation, a raise, constant raising the racial temperature over everything, and they forget that you know most of us have quite diverse families ourselves. You know, we don't, you know, we don't want to live with this, right? We don't want to, we don't want to have to put up with it, and we haven't asked for it either. That's the astonishing thing. We, you know, this is is very much after BLM. This wave, this sort of moral panic, it's the first time I've seen a proper sort of, you know, moral panic. Obviously, it was interlinked with the pandemic, but you had this, this, this Im- importation of American racialized hyperracialism and overnight, you know, and, and it was sort of washed over British society so quickly. And the absurdity of BLM activists in the UK saying, don't shoot and all this sort of thing. Mm. And actually it was astonishing. I, I touched on it in my speech. There's something seriously wrong when a plain falsehood is not able to be challenged in cultural discourse. You see this, yeah, I'm giving an example. So, you know, in the months before the Iraq invasion, the Iraq war, half of the American public thought that Iraqis were involved in these 9-11 attacks and they weren't. But half of the American public thought they were. And so look at, look at BLM and look at a racial disparity in police shootings. Eric Kaufman produced some figures in Unheard saying that among liberal Americans, you know, the, the, the well-educated types, you know, the, the university educated, among liberal Americans, half of them, about half of them thought the number of unarmed black people killed by mm. American cops was between 1,000 and 10,000. Yeah. Now, the, the figure for 2019 is 13, or on a wider conception, is 27. 13 too many, but that's such a wide 
disparity between reality and, and what their opinion was, that there's something seriously has gone wrong, you know, and I think the media is culpable. I think, the, you know, WAPO and the New York Times are, are a disgrace. And I think you just have to fight against this and have the, have the courage. But it, there was a time when last summer with BLM that Ben Copley and I were sort of writing on SDP talks and dealing with it. And I said to Ben, just, just, let's just be honest. Just, just, just have a look at the program and see what we think of it and then say what we think of it. And that's what we did, but it became very, very difficult to do it in the, in the environment. And, um, I think we did the right thing, but you know, you're sort of crying in the wilderness against some of this stuff, but it's very, yeah, to go back to what you're saying, it's almost as if, you know, some of the very big players in media and big tech and the rest of it are literally wanting to destroy solidarity and to raise the temperature. And I, I just think it's desperately dangerous. And it seems so clearly, I don't mean this in a conspiratorial sense, I'm sure it's all entirely accidental or, or opportunistic rather, but it seems so clearly to grate against class solidarity in particular. So uh, I've always been struck by the fact that big business, and by big business I mean some of the most powerful corporations on earth, mm. uh, are very amenable to the new politics of um, racial identity. So they're very amenable to the whole idea of white privilege, and they they invite people like Robin D'Angelo, who writes books about white fragility, and and other people who who pontificate on issues of whiteness. They often invite these people to speak to their employees and institute programs w- through which employees might be reprimanded and controlled it, on on the issue of race and the issue of of whiteness and so on. And for me, the great thing about class politics as it was traditionally understood was its universalizing dynamic mm. so if you were working class i mean obviously there were racial tensions in the 20th century but once those racial tensions had been resolved and anti-racist campaigns had been successful the idea was that if you were working class it didn't matter where you came from it didn't matter what skin color you had it didn't matter what sex you were or what sexuality you were the thing that drew you together with other people was your status in society and your interest in making sure that you had good working conditions, good pay, the ability to buy a home, the ability to have a comfortable life. So you were drawn together, not by your racial connections or your sexual connections or any of those other identitarian concerns, Mm. but by your community interest in struggling for a particular idea or or for a, for a, a, a greater sense of solidarity. So identity politics, the thing that really I find very frustrating when I speak to young leftists who will wave around books by Karl Marx and talk about how radical and revolutionary they are, is that I think they misunderstand how much they're playing into a new form of politics that openly undermines the ability of working class people to make gains in their lives. Totally. No, that's a brilliant, that's brilliantly put. I think that's exactly, you see it in so many areas. The more you, you know, have a preoccupation with identitarian concerns and hyper-racialism, the less you're talking about housing, the less you're talking about industry. The big thing, we produced a a green paper at the end of Indifference in, in November, and it's a brilliant bit of work by our economists. And it basically talks about how we created we had a post-war economy that was that was based on uh, industrial production and investment and the and the employment rates and the growth rates despite the fact that it's disparaged were actually far better than after the 
neoliberal turn after Thatcher got in. Far better. I mean, the, the actual record of post-1979 economics is dismal. I mean, you know, it's based on debt. I mean, you've got an economy that's just yeah. laced with debt at every yeah. single sector. You know, individuals are up to their necks in debt, households, government, corporations, debt, everything. The, the, and it acts as a drag anchor on uh, investment and growth. And so the results have been desperate. So, no, I, we, we as a party, we talk about housing all the time. I and mean, I sometimes get, you know, people accuse me of talking about nothing else, but I'm afraid to say that has such a big effect on people's lives. You know, you take out what's happened is, you know, 42% of people lived in council houses in 79 when Thatcher got in, now it's 8%. The, the state capacity in house building is gone. Anyone in the southeast particularly has very little chance of of getting a, a family, getting a house. You know, and these people are elected calling themselves conservatives. It's a disgrace. And so I, any of this stuff distracts from yeah. basics, you know, industry and housing. And, and that's, what, that's what left econ politics used to be about. And Labour Party members and MPs just don't talk about these things anymore. But I totally agree. I think you're completely right. The, the people are, are useful idiots. I mean, you know, you, you, all these, you know, all these kids, I put a, a piece in, in the magazine called Born recently about Rashford, who I think is a good lad. I think he's a nice lad. He means well, but he, he can't talk about anything serious. You know, his media mm. team won't really get him to talk about anything serious. Don't talk about family stability or anything like that, you know, as a cause of poverty. He won't want to go there. But what he will do is take the knee before a game like all the other footballers, but he won't talk about the thousands of people that are having kidney failure and have died on the sites making the Qatar World Cup. If they, if they cared, yeah. Brendan, if they cared about the World Cup, if they cared about inequality, they wouldn't go. They wouldn't be going to Qatar. So mm -hmm. this is the problem. It, you, it is a total distraction. These are luxury opinions. You know, and the fact that so many very, very rich corporations and individuals have embraced this stuff should be a little indicator that, you know, it suits them. You know, yeah. it gets people off the subject of economic inequality. Absolutely. I think luxury opinions is a, is a very good way of describing it. Okay, as we come to the end of the conversation, I want to ask you about the issue of wokeness a little bit more because, I mean, who knows what that even means? But I think people have a general sense of what it means, which is it's a new term for political correctness, for identity politics, for ensuring that you have the correct opinions and punishing anyone who doesn't have the correct opinions. I mean, that's generally how wokeness is understood. And I think the SDP has been probably the bravest of all the parties in terms of um, taking a position on some of these issues, a, a position that is not a kind of hardcore culture war position, but is a is often a very humanist position. So, for example, one thing I wanted to ask you was about the issue of gender fluidity or, or transgenderism or however however we want to refer to it. And the SDP's position, as I understand, is that of course trans people should have the same rights as everyone else, and particularly the right to a dignified life. But at the same time, there is clearly a, a problem with forcing everyone to genuflect to the idea that you can change sex, and particularly with forcing women to throw open what were traditionally women-only spaces mm. to people who we could reasonably refer to as men or as biological males or as people who were certainly born male. So uh, just explain how you see that issue and why you think it's become such a difficult issue for us to have a, a discussion about 
today? There are so many layers to it. It's, it is a very interesting issue. Uh, you know, for I'm a, I'm a second-rate philosopher, so I, I love I love categories, <laughs> and I, I am very interested in these things. So, I mean, if you just take take it from the start, I think the project to change uh, the meaning of a term like woman or girl uh, without consent of half the population that to use the term to to, to, to provide meaning uh, is a little bit is slightly impudent anyway. To just to say, well, I'm going to change the the definition of the category, you know, the meaning of the term without using, without consulting you, really asking you. But yeah, I mean, our, our, our basic approach, yeah, I mean, there are some people that are, are trans and that, that's not really, shouldn't really be in a, a problem in a, in a very uh, liberal society like ours, as long as you respect that there are some boundaries and as long as you accept that biological sex, particularly female biological sex, has some salience. You can't, mm. you can't just pretend that a declaration that if I said or you said I'm I'm a, I'm a woman that 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 gives us access to any place, any physical place, or a sporting podium or a, a changing room, uh, it, it can't. It can't. And, and women, biological women, you know, are going to say no. We, we we don't accept that. But I think you know you've got a, an inflation uh, away from that question, which is which is a question which we as a party looked at. Seriously, we, we we convened the experts, a lot of published authors, very eminent people who've been in the news recently uh, helped us with it. Our own trans members helped us with it, and we got the policy right. Just have a look on the website. It's a very humane policy, very reasonable policy. But you've got an inflation, Brendan, because then it becomes about this sort of ultra-progressive project of woke, and, and, and there you're just getting into language control. You know, you're getting into... You know, you, you step out of line on what I say something is, and you're just going to get hammered, you know, mm. for having a different opinion. And having an opinion which is, you know, in this case, well uh, grounded in biological reality and scientific reality. So that's just, that's, and I think there are some signs recently that the, you know, the, the aggressive side of that are overreaching. And I think people are, are seeing that that's, that's wrong. And I, I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic on this, but, you know, Kathleen Stock was going to come and, you know, she, she was booked to, to speak at the conference. She couldn't come because what happened. And I would say, I would like to try and talk about solutions, you know, just don't talk about problems. So what are the solutions? Well, I think a lot of the problems with these things, luxury opinions and woke people wandering around saying things, big corporations doing things, I think ultimately there have to be some consequences. Otherwise, mm. it, you know, <laughs> you can do what the hell you like. And I think the consequent, Manik Govinda wrote, a, wrote our arts policy last year. And the arts policy is you start banning or selecting particular exhibits, whatever, you just lose your funding. Mm. You just lose your funding. We won't fund. The government shouldn't fund arts organizations that start doing that. And by the same token, a, a university that presides over a situation where a decent you know, philosopher in the Western analytic tradition gets hounded off campus by a mob, you, you lose, you've got to lose funding. You've, you've got to be some consequence. And the, the Tories are, are, are quite poor on this. And remember, we've had a conservative government, and I know a lot of this, I realize a lot of this stuff's downstream of culture. I get that. Politicians are scrappling around, reacting to things. They don't always cause them. But, but you know, they've got to be more muscular. You got, You know, We've got academics. A lot. Of, this happened after Brexit. A lot of the lecturers in the party that copped it after supporting Brexit, and they had colleagues say, "Oh, I believe, you know, I, I agree with you, but I can't come out." You know, I, I think there's got to be some consequence 
to that sort of effectively oppression of other people's opinions, you know. And I think that the obvious thing is to take funding away and the state has to be really muscular with this stuff. That brings me on to my final question, which is probably too big a question to to answer in, in a few minutes, but let's give it a whirl. So you talk there about the need to be more muscular in relation to these issues, and I couldn't agree more. And one of the things that struck me about Boris Johnson's government is that it's continually been accused of launching a war on woke, but it's not at all clear that it has done that. And in many cases, it's actually capitulated to wokeness or at least been very um, cagey about criticising it. And I'm thinking in particular of the bizarre cervix controversy where Keir Starmer was unwilling to say only women have a cervix. And then Boris Johnson ermed an ard about the very same question. So the idea that he is this warrior against wokeness really does not stack up at all. No. So in terms of that need for a, a more muscular approach to these issues in order to defend the right of people to express their opinions and defend the right of philosophers like Kathleen Stock and other people in public life to criticize the ideology of transgenderism, to stand up for women's rights, to or other people to say, I voted for Brexit and I'm proud of having voted for Brexit. That culture of openness and that culture of uh, freedom of speech seems to me to be, in many ways, the, the starting point of the kinds of changes in political life that people like me and you want to see. Yeah. So, uh, how, how essential do you see freedom of speech or freedom of conscience being? And as a final point, what do you think we can do to try and restore some of those ideas? As I said before, I think government does have a role. I think there is some movement on that now, for instance, to try and guarantee freedom of speech in educational establishments and, and link it to funding. So I think you, you've, got to, you've got to do that. I think there are, there are some good signs in the younger generation, actually, not millennials, the, you know, the, the younger ones. Mm. than that you can sort of smell the air and, uh, and and see that actually if there's a rebellion to be had it's against the, some of the values of their parents and 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 so i'm quite encouraged actually <laughs> i'm quite encouraged a lot of these things are cyclic i'm not i'm not complacent i think you've got you know i think there's a long way to go and you know some people say just wait until i mean at the moment the very hyper progressive wokey type people are on the social media platforms aren't they and the and the the heads of the organizations of people my age and they're terrified of them and they're not yeah. asserting it and then people say well just wait until these people actually get to the power it might you know it might get very serious but like most of these things there's no future there's no future in despising your own culture this is this is a total luxury i think reality brendan when something has a poor correspondence to reality it usually gets a brutal wake-up call and i i hope that that's what will will basically happen and, and apart from anything else we've just got to keep on keep on trucking and enjoy trucking william thank you very much pleasure thanks okay Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.